The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Now, in our last study, we looked at verses 3 through 8 of chapter 4. Verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this is talking about the moral will of God. This is His revealed will of precept. Basically, it's telling us Yahweh wants His people to live holy lives because He's holy, and we're to be like Him. So God's will for the believers at Thessalonica, and I believe for all believers, is that we abstain from sexual immorality. Now the Greek word here translated sexual impurity or immorality is porneia. And we talked before, porneia is any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage. And again, I hate saying that. It's redundant. Heterosexual marriage, that's the only marriage there is. But in our society, you've got to clarify yourself, okay? That's the only marriage that the Bible recognizes. So this means fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, bestiality. It's all wrong, okay? So from there, we moved on to the next verse where Paul talks about how to avoid porneia. And what does he tell them? He says in verse 4 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. I don't think that's a very good translation. If you remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the RSV puts it this way, that each of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. So the interpretive problem here centers around the verb kataomai, which means either to control or acquire. And the noun skuos, which can be translated body or wife. So does this verse say that the Thessalonians should exercise control over their bodies? The Bible does back that up a lot of other places. Or is he saying that to avoid sexual immorality, you need to acquire a wife? Well, I think the textual evidence is in favor of acquiring wives. All right, I, you know, we went over that a couple weeks ago. Uh, If you missed that, go back and listen to that. I I think the textual evidence is strong that that's what this text is saying. Now, I told you in our last study that several of our extended family of Berean contacted me after the first message that I did on Pornea and asked me, hey, are you going to deal with this subject? I mean, three different people. That was a little unusual, okay? One of the questions was about polygamy. We talked about that. The other one was about marrying only believers. We talked about that. Uh, in our last study. This was two weeks ago. So the other question that I was asked, we didn't have time to discuss, so I'm going to deal with that this morning. And the question is this. What about these texts that say that whoever commits porneia will not enter the kingdom of God? And I think that's a great question. Because I know, you know you read these texts and you're like, and here's the thing, Paul says this to the Ephesians. He says it to the Galatians. He says it to the Corinthians, the same thing. So let's look at the text in Galatians. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, that's our word porneia. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, 
orgies, things like these. So all this stuff, and then stuff that's like this too, you know? Kind of throwing everything in the mix there, right? I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is Paul saying here? Well, to understand what he's saying, first thing we need to know is who's he writing to? Who's he talking to here? No, Galatians. Let's be more specific. What Galatians? Believers. Believers. Thank you. Okay. Let's go back to to Galatians 1, 2. And to all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Now, the word church here is the Greek word ekklesia. It means to call out of. The church is a body of called out people. And in verse 4, Paul says of Yeshua, who gave himself for our sins. So Paul is writing to those who have been called out of the world by Yahweh and given redemption through the death of his son. He's writing to believers. It's important we establish that. Okay? So let me ask you this. Can a believer lose their salvation? Okay, that's not an option, right? Let's take that off the table. John 10, 28, the Lord says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. Okay, so the believers are safe. If you trusted Christ, you belong to Him. Eternal life, people, is not revocable. For any cause, for anything. If you get eternal life, guess how long it lasts? Eternally. eternally thank you. Yes, eter- it's eternal life, okay? It lasts eternally. It's not revocable. All who trust Christ are eternally secure. So what is Paul saying to the Galatians and about all these different sins, but porneia in 5.21 here? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, commenting on this verse, one commentator says this, but if you could identify with any of those sins on an ongoing basis, then you should ask yourself, am I really a child of God? This is so because God concludes this passage with the dire warning, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So, I guess I want to ask you, can you identify with any of these sins? And just in case you miss some, things like this. (laughs) Okay, okay. I mean, we got idolatry, we got sorcery, we got impurity, we got strife. We have jealousy, envy, drunken orgies. You know, I think we all could identify and we all struggle with some of these things. So does that mean that we're not saved? Does that mean we don't inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, <clears throat> I'm going to say something really dumb here. Think with me for a moment. That's kind of dumb because I want you to think with me all the time. Okay, so I shouldn't have to say that, but I'm just saying, you know, think with me the whole time. Let's, let's put on our caps and think together. Could Paul have said, if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sure, he could have said that, but he didn't. See, I don't see these verses as a warning. I don't see these verses as a threat. Paul is saying this is how the unbelievers act. Don't act like them. Now let's look at a couple of things that he said here. In Galatians 5.2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All right? This is a warning. If you do this, this will happen. 15.5, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So again, this is also a warning. But in verse 21, in our text, he says, those who do such things. 
He doesn't say, if you do this, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. He does not say that. He could have. He didn't. He says, those who do such things, referring to non-believers, are not part of the kingdom of God. Notice what Paul said to the Romans in 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Chapter 11.22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in the kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 13.4. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. These are warnings. The warnings of consequences that will happen to those who Paul is writing to. But in our text, there is no warning. Paul's telling the Galatians, walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Then he gives a list of the manifestations of the flesh and the Spirit so we can know without a doubt if we're walking in the flesh and the Spirit. Notice he says, those who do such things. Is there any exhortation or imperatives in these verses? No, there isn't. What's Paul telling the Galatians to do in these verses? Nothing. He's simply showing them what the flesh produces and stating that the end results of living in the flesh is not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, I said there's no warnings here, but it says, I warn you, and as I warned, okay? I just think that's a bad translation. All right, verse 21 the Greek word um, parlego, and it means to say beforehand. So he's just saying, I told you this before. It's not a warning. And the, and the, word, the word warn there is proado, and it means to say again, to predict. Now, prolego is the same word used in Thessalonians 3, 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you. It's just saying, I already told you this. It's not a warning here. Paul can't warn the believers of loss of a kingdom. A believer can't lose his salvation. The life received as a gift of God is eternal life. So when Paul says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's referring to those who are apart from Christ. He's distinguishing the believers of the church with those who practice this way of life. And he's simply telling them, don't act like unbelievers. Every single person who does not have God as part of their lives goes down this path here. Now, that doesn't mean they do every one of these sins on the list, but there's always a significant part of their lives that's taken up with these sins. And the point Paul is making is this. Left to itself, that's where humanity goes. That's where we go when we take God out of the picture. Well, look at what he says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 8-11. through 11. He says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's our word porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua the Christ and by the Spirit of God. So Paul is talking to believers at Corinth. He opens the letter by saying to the church of God that is at Corinth, then he calls them those sanctified in Christ Yeshua, 
saints by calling. That's how he opens the letter. So he's writing to Christians, those who've been set apart, those who've been called saints. And then in verse 8 he says this, you yourselves wrong and defraud. Now the Greek word wrong here is adikeo, and it means to be unjust, to do wrong. So he's telling the Corinthians they're doing wrong. And then he says this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the word unrighteous here is adikos. Okay? You're doing wrong, adikeo, the unrighteous, adikos, same thing, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So he tells them that they're acting unjust, and then he says the unjust don't get in the kingdom. So are they not believers? Yeah, they are believers. Paul is saying that unbelievers don't inherit the kingdom of God, don't act like them. And then he says this, such were some of you. That's just how you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So don't live like those who don't inherit the kingdom of God. Live like children of the king. So Paul is not threatening believers with the loss of the kingdom. That can't happen. Now, if anybody could be threatened, it would be the Corinthians, okay? The most messed up group there is. But here's what's important. The most messed up church in the Bible, he starts out by affirming you've been sanctified by God, you're saints by calling. That's how he starts out. And he never threatens them throughout the whole letter of losing their salvation because that doesn't happen. He's simply telling believers not to act like the unsaved. They don't get to the kingdom. They don't, they're not part of that. All right, I hope that makes some sense. Let's move on to our text in verses 9 through 12. Now, in contrast to Pornea, which deals with chapter, chapter 4, verse 3 through 8, Paul now turns to the subject of Christian love. And what's important here is he's trying to tell us Pornea is never love. Okay? It's always self-centered. It always involves exploitation of one another for selfish reasons. Even though sexual sins are couched in terms of love by our society, they're really acts of self-love that harm all who get involved in it. Look what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, therefore, be imitators of God. We've gone over that many times. Imitate. Imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. These two statements are parallel. To imitate Yahweh is equal to walking in love. So the entire Christian life, believers, can be summed up as a life imitating Yahweh as beloved children as we walk in love. And God loves, we're imitating Him, we're walking in love. So Paul turns from the theme of self-sacrificial love in verse 2 to its opposite, self-indulgent sexual sin in verse 3. He says, but, porneia, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Not even named among you, okay? But here, the adversive conjunction here, puts everything in verse 3 in contrast to verse 2. So what Paul is saying is that sexual sin is a violation of love. You can't love another in a biblical sense and practice sex with him or her outside of marriage. It's impossible. They're mutually contradictory. Therefore, you cannot combine the two. There's no such thing as sexual relations outside of marriage 
done in love. So Paul goes from porneia to love. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The word now here is from the Greek peridei, which possibly indicates that Paul is responding to questions that the Thessalonians had. Uh, He uses the same formula six times in 1 Corinthians to introduce his answer to the Corinthians' questions. So most likely when Timothy came back to give the report, he also had some questions. Hey, these guys, they got some questions for you, and that seems to indicate. Now he says, now concerning brotherly love. This is the Greek word Philadelphia, which was used in secular writings for affection between natural brothers and sisters in a family. I think that's really cool here. What he's saying here, in the New Testament, it's used of love between members of the family of God. He's saying, we're brothers and sisters. We're family. Now concerning Philadelphia, now concerning your love for one another in the family of God. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says this. You don't have any need for anyone to write you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What is Paul saying here? (laughs) Is he saying that they, we, don't need biblical instructions on loving one another? You don't need it. You've been taught by God. Commenting on this verse, John MacArthur says this. Now, let me just say this. I don't quote MacArthur to pick on him, okay? I owe a debt of gratitude to the man. I got my style, my verse-by-verse teaching from him. I think I used to follow him, and I thought, that's so important. He goes through everything. Cover them all. I appreciate that. And I use him to quote because he's a contemporary, well-known author and speaker. And I think sometimes his influence is negative, okay, because of some of his doctrines. And so that's why I quote him. I want you to understand where he's coming from. And, but here's what he writes about this text. He's saying you don't need external instruction. You don't need external motivation. You don't need external exhortation. You have an internal teaching. You're God-taught. You say, you mean if I'm a Christian, nobody needs to teach me to love my brother because God will do that? Yes. How? I'll show you how. Romans 5.5, it tells you exactly how God does that. Romans 5.5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Every Christian has a basic Inherent attitude of love toward other Christians produced by salvation. And if it isn't there, salvation isn't there. (laughs) Boy, this should make every Christian tremble in their boots if you believe what he's saying. All right. You say, well, what if a Christian doesn't love? Not possible. Absolutely not. You know, I read this and I kind of wonder, does he know any Christians? He's got a huge church. Does he know any Christians? He goes on, the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. He teaches you to love. It's impossible not to love. Christians will love Christians. People, when you read stuff like this, I I pray. I I pray when you read everything. You're a critical thinker. Not a critical person, but a critical thinker. Evaluating what's being said. So what MacArthur is saying here, listen, 
This is one of the problems I have. This is lordship theology at its finest, okay? It really is. That's, that's the idea behind here. And the idea with lordship theology is if you're saved, really saved, you automatically do what's right. It's inherent. You just, boom, it's like, I can't help but do right. I'm a Christian. And see, MacArthur gives the idea, he doesn't say it, but he gives the idea that righteousness is imparted as opposed to imputed. Okay? So if righteousness is imparted, boom, I'm righteous. Everything I do, everything I say, I'm righteous. If it's imputed, it's put to my account. If righteousness is imparted, then my question is, why are there so many commands in Scripture to live righteously? That's kind of a waste of time, isn't it? All he's got to tell us is, get saved and lay out the gospel. That's the end of it, because if it's automatic, then we're gone. We're off on a run. Okay, everything's fine. Let me ask you this, believer. Be honest. Is it natural and automatic for you to love? <laughs> you say, there's some people it's kind of automatic for. No. Is it, is it natural? Is it, it, for you, is it automatic to live righteously? If you buy into MacArthur's theology that it's impossible not to love, Christians will love, and, and if it isn't there, salvation isn't there. Say you buy into this. Love is automatic. All Christians love. They do what the Bible told them to do automatically. If you buy into this and you find yourself not loving, what does that mean? What do you do? Okay, you, you question your salvation. And listen, this is why BBN took MacArthur off the air here. Because they stated he is causing believers to question their salvation. Because this is the thing. All right, look what he... If you're not loving, you're not saved. So then what do you do? Well, I need to get saved. Well, well, how do I do that? Well, you believe the gospel. Well, I did that. I believed the gospel. I thought I believed. I mean, I believe... I believed, I prayed, I did whatever. So then where are you? You're in a hopeless position. I went to God, I trusted God, I believed God, but I'm not loving like I should, so I must not really believe, but so I, you're just in this hopeless position. This is my big problem with MacArthur and Lordship Theology. It leaves Christians hopeless. If you're not the perfect Christian, you're probably not a Christian at all. If you're not a Christian at all, is there any use to try and live the Christian life? No. You just keep coming to that altar. Keep falling in love with them over and over and over. You keep coming to the altar every week. You know, when I was in the Baptist church, believe me, the same people every week are at the altar. I'm like, <laughs> okay. You know, you might want to deal with this instead of just coming to the altar every week, all right? All right, let's talk for just a minute about the doctrine of justification so we understand what's going on here. Justification may be defined as that act of God whereby he declares, get that word declares, righteous him who believes in Christ. Not makes righteous, declares righteous. Ladd, George Ladd, writes this. The root idea in justification is the declaration of God. The righteous judge that the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous, is viewed as being righteous 
Because in Christ, he has come into a righteous relationship with God. So justification is a declarative act. It's not something wrought in man, but something declared of man. Justification is not being made righteous experientially, but being declared righteous. It's not the removal of our liabilities. It's the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's not something done in us. It's something done for us. We are not, and we cannot be justified by works. Love would be a work, and we're supposed to love, so maybe we're not loving enough, so we're not justified. No, it's not about works. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. In his sight, since through the law is the knowledge of sin, we can only be justified by faith. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Peace, peace with God is the new status between God and the believer which flows from the reconciliation accomplished in Christ. All right, back to our text. For you yourselves have been taught of God to love one another. All right, is Paul saying we don't need biblical instruction in loving one another? No, not at all. And listen, people, this should be obvious. Okay? It should be obvious because the New Testament has so much to say on the subject. That's one reason it should be obvious. And it should be obvious because the church is so bad at doing this. Okay? I mean, people, the church is known throughout the world of not being a very loving place. Right? It's a condemning, judgmental place where, you know, they shoot their own wounded. Why would there be so many commands to love if MacArthur's right, we automatically love one another. The command to love is repeated 13 times in the New Testament. All right? Yeshua told his disciples this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is a present active imperative. It's showing that love is to be the dominating, consistent activity in our relationship. And Yeshua is here repeating the command that he already made in 1334, and then he's going to repeat it again in 1517. So three times in the upper room discourse, Yeshua tells them to love one another. People, this is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. You cannot live the Christian life the way God wants us to. You cannot abide in Christ. You cannot be a disciple of Christ without a commitment to loving other people. Love is the most significant attribute Christians can offer the world. We need to love one another. To not be a loving person is not some small character flaw. It is to break the greatest commandment, which is to love God. So we need to understand that love is a requirement. And over and over he tells us in the scripture to do it because we so often fail to do it. So, all right, then what did Paul mean by we've been taught of God to love one another? Well, the words here, taught by God, are from the Greek, theodikatos, which is found only here in the New Testament. And it means this, God taught. So, how have we been God taught to love one another? I think there's three ways that believers are God taught to love one another. Number one, we're taught by the example of God himself. Okay? 
in sending his son for our sins. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God showed us his love, that he sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So this shows us what love is and what it means. Love is not only defined by the sacrifice of Yeshua, it's also defined by the giving of the Father. It was a sacrifice for the Father to send the second person of the Trinity to pour out judgment that we deserve. He poured it out on Yahweh's Son. This is an example of how we are to love. God loved us. He made a huge sacrifice. We are to love one another. We are to make sacrifices for one another. So I think that's the primary way that we're God taught is through example. But secondly, they were taught by God through Paul. Okay? So through the apostle, they're being taught by God. This teaching came from Paul when he was among them. Paul said here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Yeshua. In other words, the instructions he's giving them ultimately derived not from his own authority, but from Christ's authority. This instruction to love one another derives not only from Yeshua's present authority, but from the upper room discourse where, again, three times he told his disciples, love one another. That's how people are going to know you're my disciples. That's not how they're going to know you're Christian. That's how they're going to know you're disciples. You're loving one another. All right, thirdly, I think we do this We are taught by God through the continuing inward ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So we have the example of God. That's God's teaching us. This is how I want you to love. We have the instruction in the Scripture through the apostles, the teaching of the Word of God that tells us this is how we're to live. And we have the inward ministry of the Holy Spirit who is teaching us and guiding us. In Galatians 5.22, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now what he's talking about here is the result that the Spirit produces, and the Spirit produces Christ's likeness. Now, fruit is not something which is attached to a branch, fastened on from without. It's the organic product of the inner life. Believers are to be controlled by the Spirit. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18-19. through Don't get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and this, this filled, probably not the best word here. I think control would be the best word. Because don't get controlled by alcohol. Be controlled by the Spirit. Then he says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. So, this is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. It's in the imperative mood. Christians in Asia Minor, and Christians everywhere, I believe, have been commanded to be filled by the Spirit, which tells me this. Not all Christians are. Again, why command something that, you? oh, you already did it, but I'm going to command you to do it. Like, I'm doing that. What are you commanding me to do what I can't help but do? Because I'm a Christian. All Christians do that, right? No, they don't. Okay. It's a verb that's in the present tense, and so it literally means keep on being filled. This isn't a once-for-all experience. Keep on doing this. The verb is passive, which means you don't fill yourself. Something is done to you. You can put yourself in a position to be filled, But it's the Lord who fills. It's the Spirit who does the filling. Now, the word filled here is the Greek word plerao. 
It's used of something which is filled with content. For example, to fill a container. Or in the passive sense, the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. Now, metaphorically, we, found it, we find it used in Scripture. In the passive, it can mean to be filled with unrighteousness, like in Romans 1.29. Or to be filled can connote the idea of that a man is completely controlled by the powers that fill him. And I think that's the idea. We see this idea of control in passages like John 16.8. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The word filled her, play raho. In other words, they were filled with sorrow to the point that sorrow controlled them. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the statement, he was filled with fear? Don't you envision a man, he's so controlled, he's so motivated by fear that every decision, every action is guided by that fear. Filled with fear. I think of fear today, and it's a fear that's instilled. People are controlled by fear when you see them driving down the road by themselves with a mask on. As to date, there's 163 studies, peer-reviewed studies, that say masks do not work. People still are dominated by fear, and they just think this is going to help me somehow. And if it doesn't, you put that on and another one on top of it, and then you put a shield on, and you put rubber gloves on. You know, that's, that's being controlled by fear. The Spirit of God is so to pervade our being that He controls us. In other words, our thoughts, our affections, our purposes, everything is driven, everything is controlled by the Spirit. So the way we're controlled by the Spirit, Paul tells us in Colossians 3.16, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. If you compare Ephesians 5 with Colossians 3.16, in Ephesians he says, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Notice what the outcome is of both of these. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Well, they're parallel passages. Being filled with the Spirit, it's the same result as letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, believers, listen, as the Word dwells in you, the Spirit can control you. That would totally nullify what MacArthur's trying to teach, that we don't need external teaching. It's just not, no, the Word has to teach us this so the Spirit can control us. Loving others is not natural, it's not innate, it's something believers are commanded to do. And this lordship stuff of MacArthur is way off base in teaching that it's impossible for a Christian not to love. Every Christian I know at some point or another has not loved like they should. So what do they stop and say, oh, I must not be saved. This is damaging to the church. This is harming the church. Okay? All Christian, Christians are just questioning. I'm not perfect. I'm not living up to... No, you're not. And that's why the commands are there. All right, let's move on. Verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing. <laughs> okay? You're doing it to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do it more and more. Now, if you remember, Paul began the letter by commending the Thessalonians for their labor of love. He says, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love. This is a loving church. They're reaching out. They're caring. They're loving. He says, that indeed is what you are doing. In other words, I want you to love, and man, you're doing that through all Macedonia. Now, 
You are doing is a present tense verb which speaks of continuing action. You guys are doing a great job of this. Now, the love of the Thessalonians was known throughout Macedonia, he says. This could be referring to the hospitality that they gave believers from other parts of Macedonia that are traveling through their city. Remember, Thessalonica is a major port. It's also on a major highway. So people are coming through here all the time. They're demonstrating love to other believers. They're doing it. This could also refer to the fact in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the Macedonian Christians in their deep poverty gave generously to help others. So he could be talking about, you know, your love is demonstrated and you're giving to help out these other believers who are in need. Your love is demonstrated throughout the city when you're taking in people, helping them, encouraging them. They were loving. And Paul says, we urge you, do it more. It's not enough. Keep going. Listen, since Christ's perfect example is our standard, we always have room to grow. No matter how good we're doing at this, we got room to grow. We can always love our spouse more, right? Just waiting for an amen from back there. I didn't get it. <laughs> we can always love our children more, our family more, our fellow Christians more, our neighbors. We can always love more. People, it's not automatic, and you know it's not automatic. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. I had to deal with it the other day. I was frustrated about something and some people, and I'm like, I'm commanded to love these people. It's not an option. It's not I can pick and choose. No, I'm commanded to love them, and that's what I have to do. doesn't matter what I feel. doesn't matter what my mood is. I'm commanded to do that. It requires deliberate thought and effort. What Paul says here is very similar to what he said to the Philippians. In one nine, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In other words, they're loving. Hey, do it more. <laughs> and then he adds this clause, with knowledge and discernment. Now, discernment here is eisthesis, which refers to spiritual insight, perception, denoting moral and spiritual understanding of the issues involved. In other words, he's saying, love needs the wisdom of the word so it can make loving, wise choices, not sentimental, emotional choices. Sometimes people think, well, love is just emotional, and you being all kind and goo-goo and all. Sometimes love is discerning. It's supposed to be discerning. That's not loving for me. To give you what you want is not loving. It's not going to help you. It's just going to hurt you. Amen. We have to discern. We have to be discerning. But people, I want you to understand what Paul's trying to say here. Love is preeminent, okay? Love is described for us in 1 Corinthians 13. You can go over the qualities there. It's patient. It's kind. You know, goes through all these things. That's what love is. Love is illustrated in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's commanded throughout the Bible. It's declared to be the preeminent virtue, the summary of the whole Scripture according to Mark 12, 30, and 31. Yeshua boiled it all down. He says, here, this, you, here, this is it. The law and the prophets. Here it is. Love God, love your neighbor. Boom. Simple, right? Now you say, well, then we don't really need the Scriptures. No, the Scriptures tell you how to love God, how to love your neighbor. Okay? And Paul exclaims this. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That tells us, people, the importance of love. Let's move on. Verse 11. And he says here, And aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands, 
your own hands as we instructed you. Now, let me just tell you, there is a boatload of confusion and misunderstanding on what these next two, 11 and 12, these verses mean. I mean, we really, I just tell you, we don't, we can do the best we can, but we don't know the other side. We don't know what's going on here, but he, you know, it's just kind of weird. But here's the thing that I see common, most commentators and scholars seem to understand. Having advocated a reading that states the Thessalonians had abandoned work as part of their eschatological expectation. Most people agree that. They say, well, the problem here, why they're not working, is they're waiting for the Lord to come. And why work if the Lord's coming soon, right? Listen to MacArthur's comments on this verse, okay? You'll like this. Paul had taught them about the return of Christ. And they were waiting for the return of Christ. I mean, they were literally actually waiting for Christ to come. Got that. So far, we're on the same, same page here, John. What had Paul told them? He must have told them they had reason to expect its possibility. Well, I would say not possibility. It was a sure thing, but he did teach them that. He goes on, Did Paul believe it could possibly happen in his lifetime? I can't imagine any other reason why he would tell them to wait. Good job, John. (laughs) Since even Jesus didn't know the hour of his coming, Paul didn't know. And they were waiting for the return of Christ. So he does a good job, but he's saying, listen, he's saying here that Paul believed the Lord would return in his lifetime. He made that really clear. But then he says, Paul didn't know. Huh. So Paul said he knew, but he was wrong. What does that do to inspiration? Where else was Paul wrong? When MacArthur said, even Jesus didn't know the hour was coming. Well, he's referring there to Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Many today use this verse to prove that we don't know when he's coming. No one knows when he's coming. It's sometime in the future to us, but nobody knows when. Here's the problem. Yeshua just told them a few verses previously. It would be in their generation. He said that. Your generation. Generation about 40 years. So they, but, listen, they didn't know the day or the hour. When a woman gets pregnant, we know about 40 weeks later she's going to have a baby. Right? Do we know the exact day or hour? Not if it's natural. Now, C-sections can be scheduled. I realize that. Okay. But we're not talking about C-sections here. We're talking about natural birth. We don't know the day or hour. We know it's going to be in about 40 weeks she's going to have a baby. And that's exactly what Yeshua is saying here. And it's quite interesting that the time prior to the consummation of the kingdom is often referred to as birth pains. Matthew 24, 8. These are but the beginning of birth pains. The Greek word translated birth pains here is odin, and it means a pain, especially of childbirth, pain, sorrow, travail. The illustration is of gestation and childbirth. It's a biblical one. We know when the birth of the child is near, we just don't know the day or the hour. Even when a woman goes into labor, we don't know the day or the hour. Could be a long labor, could be a way. But Paul said they are to aspire to live quietly. 
This is a really interesting statement. The word aspire here is philatamemomai. <laughs> and it means to be zealous and to strive eagerly. So what he's saying here, be zealous and strive eagerly to be quiet. <laughs> okay? Quiet here is hesuhadzo. This word is used, hesuhadzo is used in the New Testament of a number of things. It's used of keeping your mouth closed and not saying anything. Strive eagerly to keep your mouth shut. It's used of quieting down when you've been speaking. It's used of resting, but it has the idea in all those usages of tranquility, calm, peaceful. The root has the idea of quiet and peaceful. One noun form literally means to keep your seat, sit down and relax. So I guess you could say that it means a life of peaceful, non-turbulent, a quiet life. A related word is used to describe the wife with a quiet spirit in 1 Peter 3, 4. It's a life that does its best to avoid unnecessary contention and to be at peace with all men as far as humanly possible. Again, it's just difficult. Commentators like, what's he saying here? Just do your best to be quiet. Okay? Now listen, here's the thing. Since this seems to be connected with their view of eschatology... Maybe he's saying, be peaceful with your whole idea of when the Lord's coming. You know, sometimes I'm sure they could, these guys, if this is the whole situation here, they're thinking it's going to happen real quick. And they're arguing with maybe, you know, over when is exactly this going to happen. He goes on to say, mind your own affairs. Some translations say, mind your own business. <laughs> Here's the problem. We really don't know what he was speaking to because we don't know the issues that were brought up here. He seems to be saying, don't be a busybody. And then he says, and to work with your own hands. Now, commenting on this, G.K. Beale writes this. Most agree that the problem is Christians not working to support themselves because of a mistaken belief that Christ would return within the near future. The fact that the warning against slackness is working occurs both directly before and after 5.14, Paul's explicit teaching, and Christ's final coming supports this conclusion. So like Beale said, a lot of people say this has to do with their eschatological view. Maybe this is the case, but listen. How long did they have to wait? Remember when this letter was written? 50 A.D. When's the Lord coming? 70 A.D. They had a 20-year wait here, people. 20 years is a long time for you? That's a long time for me. <laughs> okay? And, and we're talking about 20-year wait. Soon, okay, in the sense of time, but, you know, in, in their generation, 40 years, they only had 20 years to go. But that's a long wait. That's a long wait. And if you're quitting your job because I'm waiting for the Lord to come, what's going to happen? You're going to start getting hungry, and you're going to start bugging other people to take care of you. Start trying to live off somebody because you're not working because I thought he was coming. This has happened throughout history so many times. People have sold everything and gone and waited for the Lord. Here's another interesting. Manual labor was generally despised by those of the Greek aristocracy and by those who aspired to higher social status. To work with your hands was something that slaves and artisans did, and artisans were often compared to a slave. 
Those of high social rank and wealth lived knowing nothing of labor, Philo says. They just looked down on it. That was peasant stuff. So whatever Paul is telling them, he repeats it in the next letter when he says this in 2 Thessalonians. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know what God's cure of laziness is? Hunger. That's what it says. If you don't work, you don't eat. Whoa. Guess what? Hunger has a driving force to say, I got to get out and do something. You know, I got to go get some food. I got to make some money. I got to take care of myself. But we've, we've totally wiped this out in our country through welfare and stamps and food, whatever. You know, you don't have to work. We'll take care of you. What's the motivation? And I'll tell you, I'm still baffled today. It's hard to go in a restaurant that's fully staffed. They all have help wanted signs. And I hear all these restaurant owners saying, we just can't get people to work. And I'm like, what are they doing? Who's providing for them? Somebody's got to be, is the government still handing out money to these people? What's going on? I mean, again, you know, if you're not working, you're going to get hungry. Paul says, for you hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. There you go with that busybody stuff. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Yeshua the Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Get to work, he says. Take care of yourself. Don't count on anybody else. Paul says something similar to the Ephesians in 428. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor. In other words, get a job instead of taking other people's stuff. I don't know how this uh, would apply to the government who steals from us everything we make just about. Okay, Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now watch the reason for this. So that he may have something to share with people in need. Stop stealing, get a job, and then you can help other people out. (laughs) Then Paul adds this, as we instructed you. He keeps reminding them of what he already told them. He taught them a lot when he was there in that short time, obviously. Here's an interesting thing. The word instructed here is perangalo, and it means command you. Paul's instructions were more than information or a suggestion. This is an authoritative apostolic command, just as we commanded you. So obviously he commanded them to work very hard, to be quiet, to mind their own business, and to work with their hands. He commanded them to do that. Then in verse 12 says, So that, this is a hina, purpose clause in the Greek, and he says, So that you may walk properly. And walk here is peripateo, refers to your conduct in life, all the various areas of life. So you can live, now watch, before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So you're not looking for a handout from anybody. You're taking care of yourself. And because of this, you got a testimony towards those that are outside. Paul is saying you are to be loving. You are not to be busybodies. You're to be working hard as a testimony to your faith in Christ to outsiders. They are to walk, live properly. Live in a way, he says, that brings glory to God. As Christians... As children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty to imitate Christ. Talk about this all the time. Since He is compassionate, we as His image bearers are to be compassionate. Since He is loving, 
And that's the direct tie-in with that passage in Ephesians. Imitate God, love. God love, you love. He's loving, we're to be loving. He's righteous, we're to be righteous. We are to display God in everything we do because we, you and I, Christians, have been sent to be image bearers. To show to the world, here's what our God looks like. Let me remind you of what we saw in our study of 1 John. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So John is talking about love here. Then he says, no one's ever seen God. And on the surface, you're like, okay, that seems kind of random. What does God's invisibility have to do with the discussion on love? Everything. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfecting us. Well, what does that mean? He means that the unseen God who historically was revealed in the incarnation of the Son, is now revealed to the world by the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit in His people when they love one another. So in other words, listen, no one's ever seen God. Let them see Him in you. This is an amazing thought. People don't see God. And they never read their Bible, so they're not going to see Him there. But they will see God, John says, when Christians love one another. It's foreign to the world. True Christian love. Mutual Christian love manifests the presence and actions of the invisible God. People, that's how important love is. We show the world our God. We bear His image They see Him when they see us. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for this text. Much in here, Lord, that's hard to understand what what He's directing them to do here. I just pray You'd give us wisdom, Lord, that we would live quiet lives. We'd mind our own business. We'd demonstrate love in all we do. And we'd work to take care of ourselves, Lord. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for giving us the Word of God that we could study and seek to know you in a more intimate way. Lord, help. I pray you'd help each and every one of us understand the preeminence of love, Lord, how important it is that we as your children bear your image as loving people. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Okay, questions. Did we lose the feed, Garrett? No? Uh, They're saying we hadn't lost the feed, so I guess it's on your part. But if you lost the feed, you can't hear me, so you don't know what I'm even saying. This is a a group text or something here. This is not a lot of songs out there use the use his correct name. We should change Jesus and turn your eyes to Yahweh. <laughs> um, we try to do that when we can, but you know, Jesus is one syllable and Yahweh is two syllables and Yeshua is three syllables, so it's you know Jesus is two syllables. But Jesus and Yeshua is three. 
Yeah, I'm okay, sure. yeah, right. Okay, I'm sorry. If we change it to Yahweh, but then you can't Yeah, so we do, we try to when we can. Um, believe me, if you, if you look at the original words from Turn Your Eyes, you'll see we changed quite a few words in that song, okay? <laughs> All right, he says, I agree that Christians don't always love naturally. Do you think maybe MacArthur was thinking about 1 John 2, 4 or 4.20, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him? Well, it could be. MacArthur takes 1 John as a test of Christianity. I think that's totally ridiculous, but that's how he takes it. This is the test to tell if you're a Christian. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he cannot see, cannot love God. Whom he... Yes, and I've gone over, if you go to our series on 1 John, it's online. I deal with those verses. Love is very important, okay? But it's not a test of Christianity, okay? It is a test of discipleship, I believe. This is how disciples live. They love one another. And that's what Yeshua said. By this love, all men will know you're my disciples. And he told these Christians, followers of his, to abide in him. They were already Christians. He's telling them to do something else. Abide. A disciple abides in Christ. It's a close, it's an intimate relationship of following. MacArthur doesn't see a distinction there. Okay? So, but I mean, you, you go back and you can just read his words. They're very clear. If you're not loving, you're not a Christian. Boom. That's a pretty broad thing. Okay? How, how, not loving one time, not loving two days in a row, how, what, you know, what's the standard here? Yeah, who's your neighbor? <laughs> uh, Nancy in Texas asks, is Philippians 1.9 the answer to Christians who embrace acceptance of homosexuality within their ranks because their defense is love them to show we are disciples. Um, you can't... Listen, I would agree that we're called to love homosexuals. Okay? We're called to love everybody. All right? And that's the whole story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were despised people from the Jews. And what did he do? It's the Samaritan, okay, who showed love. We're called to love everybody. That doesn't mean we accept what they do. But it means, do we treat them mean? Do we treat them rotten? Do we make fun of them? No. We're just tell them about Christ. We're to show them Christ. But we can tell them. If you love them, you're going to tell them. The Bible says what you're doing is sin. It is wrong. Okay? Anthony? Yes. I, you know, you know, people that you say love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm quite sure some people out there who don't know the definition of how to love themselves. Well, that's very so, true. So how can they love the neighbor? But, like you said, I'm thinking that that's why you got to be more into it of that scripture to find out more in detail how to do that, I guess. Yeah, I think there are some people out there that you know, don't love themselves, you know. But that's not a... De- by far is the exception, not the rule. Most people love themselves way, and most people, when they're not happy with themselves, it's because they love themselves and they're not getting everything they want. So then they get miserable or whatever else. All right, Gary. Well, um, does MacArthur realize his inconsistency? 
I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. Probably not. I think he made corrections. He's hardcore lordship. He's not going to budge off of that. I've had personal conversations with him face to face. One time up at uh, Word of Life at Screwing Lake, and I didn't get the impression from him he was very open to dialogue on some of these things. Okay. Correction. In other words, I, I'm Pastor MacArthur. You just you're a peon. Be quiet. It was very disheartening, but. <clears throat> I mean, Galatians uh, 519, 521, it sounds like if you do those things, you'll lose your salvation. But it's not consistent with Romans 8.30. Well, that's the thing. You have to be consistent with Scripture. You, know, you can't pull out some passage. What does the whole of Scripture say? And again, we got to you know apply the analogy of faith and, and put this together and come with a consistent picture. you just got to understand that life eternal is that. It's eternal life. And you get it by faith. And then you put those together. Okay, we can't lose it. Then there's a lot of exhortations in Scripture on how to live. Uh, John writes, Pastor David, in the beginning God commanded light to appear, and it appeared. When Joshua commanded his disciples to love, it is therefore a done deal, especially if we receive his commandment by faith. Thank you for sharing your valuable understanding of his word. We are being continually blessed by you. Um, Okay. When Joshua, I wonder if he meant to say Yeshua there, if, he, if you're talking into this and the, you know, it's changing the words for you here. When he commanded his disciples to love, it is therefore a done deal. Ah, see, I wouldn't agree with that. I wouldn't agree because he kept telling them the same thing. And he kept repeating it. And throughout Scripture, it keeps repeating it. Because we have to constantly be reminded to do that. I don't think it's a done deal. Let me just put it this way. In my life, it's not a done deal. Okay? It's not a done deal. I, it's a, something I have to be conscious of, something I have to think of, something I have to pray of. Some people are not very lovely. Some people are easy to love. Others, not so much at all. That's where the difficulty comes in. Okay? You've got you to gotta work at it. You've got to pray about it. You know, at least I do. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a Christian. If we Christians questions if we Christians are to live by the Spirit, would it be better for Christians not to drink alcohol at all? Some people get buzzes on one drink. Stephen, well, be better. I, you know, here's the thing. That's a that's a difficult question because I know that some people just have that mentality. You know, we shouldn't do this at all. It's better to do this. Better to do this. Maybe, but alcohol is not wrong. Okay, here's what the Bible condemns. Drunkenness. Drunkenness is wrong. And I'll tell you this. When people do dumb stuff that gets them in trouble, they're usually under the influence. I'm serious. People, you ever heard the country song, uh, Alcohol? It says, I'll make you put a lampshade on your head. and do it. it goes into all the dumb things you'll do under the influence. So yes, if you got a problem with that, you should not do that. But that's not saying that alcohol, what he's saying in, the, in Ephesians, don't be controlled by alcohol. Doesn't say don't drink it, don't touch it. That's only in America where Christianity has that view. You go to any other country in the world, they don't have a problem. Okay? There was a, 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 mission, a mission overseas that we were involved in, an orphanage. And they had plenty of wine and alcohol stuff there. And they said whenever the Christians came over to visit, they had to hide all the alcohol. The Christians from America came. 
they had to hide all their alcohol, you know, because Christians from America have a different view on things. But no, I, I don't. I don't think alcohol is wrong. I mean, I think if you, you know, you know your limits and you can control that, it's like anything else. You know, we can overdo everything. I'd say there's just as many people have a problem with food overdoing than they do with alcohol overdoing. You know, and whatever else, pick what you want. You know, I know, quit meddling. I got. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in moderation. Yeah, do not be drunk with food. See, that's the problem with food. You have to eat it. You have to eat it. You can't just not eat food. You cannot have alcohol. You cannot do a lot of things. But with food, food is the real problem. Because